The problem of racism is not a new problem. And it's a problem, unfortunately, that has also been present within the church as long as there's been a church. One degree or another, it's, it's been there some point uh, for a number of different reasons, but I think primarily just for the reason that the church is made up of people. People who are under the curse of sin and we get it wrong sometimes. We've seen examples of this in modern day. I mean, we're seeing uh, what's happening right now in the Southern Baptist Convention as they're dealing with these issues of, of racism and uh, responding to alt-right uh, ideologies and these sort of things and how that works out. A classic example from history would be uh, when the great pioneering missionary to India, William Carey, first stood up in a meeting of Baptist leaders and was arguing for the desperate need for overseas missions. He was apparently interrupted and told by an older senior minister, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. And when God pleases to convert those heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Wow. <laughs> okay, well, hey, the, that older minister, as it relates to consultation, okay, yeah, he's right. God doesn't consult any one of us. Uh, so who he's going to save or not save or, or when, he doesn't consult us. And yet, haven't we seen as we've been going through this series already, time and time again, looking at the pioneer beginnings of the church, that yeah, although God does not need us in any way, he absolutely condescends regularly to invite us in to be a part of what he's doing in, in building God's kingdom throughout the world. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to, to say that well beyond a distaste for enthusiasm, I think that older minister's remark and his rebuke truly revealed, I think, a racial bias that has no place and is antithetical to a gospel of grace. Over the past three weeks, uh, within this series we've been going through on Acts called Pioneer Church, we've been talking about specifically about the church expanding beyond their comfort boundaries. Ultimately, the way God overcomes boundaries in order to build His kingdom and grow His church through the world. Uh, uh, we saw with the Samaritans and the Ethiopian official, very likely of a Jewish heritage as well, how uh, that was in Acts chapter 8, how the gospel overcomes cultural boundaries. We saw last week with the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, the gospel overcoming religious and political boundaries. Today, very simply, in this chapter, we're going to see with Peter's witness to the Roman centurion how the gospel also overcomes ethnic and racial boundaries as well. But I think as we work through this passage, it's a story that, I mean, it stretched them, but I think even just reading through it, it's going to stretch us today as well. It's going to stretch us in its call to ensure that our own witness is free from any form of racism or ethnic superiority. But it's also going to stretch us when we look at the way the Spirit overcame these racial boundaries to the gospel. Namely, with all this talk about uh, visions and dreams working that way. That's, that's not many of our experience of Christianity. And if we're not careful, our unfamiliarity with those kind of things can cause us to be dismissive of it can actually cause us to slip into the, the error of classic liberalism in the 20th century that, that saw these supernatural events in the Bible as, as kind of superstition and folklore that actually, uh, actually hinders the preaching of the gospel today in our modern, enlightened world. 
My encouragement to you this morning as we read through this passage not to do that. Just allow the, the text, however unfamiliar these things may be, just to speak for itself. A, so that we give it a chance to, to do what, say what it wants to say without prejudging its validity based on these supernatural events. And also, so that we don't make the equally serious error of presuming that just because our congregation, I think, is doing a pretty great job at, at removing racial boundaries to the gospel, assuming that that means that we haven't also created other boundaries of our own to the gospel that also have no place in God's Word. So as we look at this pioneer church expanding beyond racial boundaries this morning and finally fulfilling Jesus' command of the church in Matthew 28, Acts 1.8, to be his witnesses, expand his kingdom to the ends of the earth, I want to look at our passage this morning just in two ways. I want to show you a divine appointment and then a divine pointing. Just these two things, the divine appointment and a divine pointing. So if you closed your Bibles and you open them again, Acts chapter 10, follow along with me as we close out this mini-series within a series, looking at a witness to a centurion. Okay, so let's begin by looking at a divine appointment. A divine appointment. Now, you may have heard those words used, divine appointments, by people in all kinds of different ways in your life. Generally, what people mean by that is that they see circumstances that have worked out. They've come together so perfectly that God or some divine source must have worked it out because look at how amazingly it worked out. I mean, you you see people using this terminology to describe all kinds of different things from conversion experiences, meeting your spouse, uh, to the day when whoever it was thought to put peanut butter and chocolate together at the same time, making peanut butter cups. Divine appointment. But as you read Acts 10, I don't think anyone would argue that what's being described here is a divine appointment. Clearly, a meeting of two two individuals that was unmistakably planned and and orchestrated by the Spirit of God. And what's so cool about this chapter is that it gives us this behind-the-scenes look at the way that I believe the Holy Spirit is working all the time in order to draw men and women to Himself. Now, no, He doesn't always work this way. Sure, I mean, we said last week that that aside from a few common elements in conversion, the Holy Spirit always works different ways. He's got millions of different ways that He works. Uh, The common element we saw last Sunday to someone coming to faith is a consistent witness over time. Here, what we're going to see today, the common element, and that you see throughout the Bible, really, is that salvation is always the result of God's initiative. God's always the one who makes the first move, if you will, in the relationship. If you look, for instance, at uh, this Roman centurion, Cornelius, look at verse 2 with me. Now, although we see that Cornelius is one of these God-fearers, these uh, non-Jewish people who had come to believe in the God of Israel but hadn't submitted to the uh, Jewish laws of circumcision, uh, dietary laws, even though he is one of these God-fearers, he's not seeking this further revelation at all. He's not seeking out this meeting with Peter at all. None of this has happened. He's simply just walking according to the light that he has available to him when the Holy Spirit then, of his own initiative, sends this angel who tells him, go and find Peter, this man in Joppa. He's at this house. Go there and he's going to give you a message by which you and your whole household will be saved. 
Now, already two things I think we see there right away. The Spirit, God's Spirit, is absolutely the one initiating this divine appointment. He's taking the first move here, isn't he? I think it's the same conclusion that we often come to ourselves when we look back over our lives, or maybe we know now when it comes to our own story of coming to faith in God. I think it's just as uh, the hymn writer said so beautifully, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew, he says, He moved my soul to seek Him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. Second thing we see, though, in this brief interaction with Cornelius is that it's just what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16, that the message of the gospel, it truly is the power of God unto salvation. It is. Because when you look at the content of this conversation between Cornelius and this angel, do you notice what the angel doesn't say? He doesn't come in and say, Hey, Cornelius, I just want to let you know you're doing a great job, brother. You're doing great. You just keep up that prayer, that giving to the poor, all this stuff you're doing. You keep that up. You're absolutely going to be accepted by God. You're going to be saved by Him. He doesn't say that. Even though Cornelius is this religious man, he's doing all this service to God, he's still told he needs to send for Peter, who will bring him a message. This is the gospel message, and it's because of that message that he and his whole family will be saved. So that's Cornelius. Now we get to see the other side. We flip over to Peter, all the way in Joppa, which is 50 kilometers south of Caesarea. We get to see how the Spirit brings about the divine appointment in his life. Look at verses 9 and 10 now of our passage. See Peter, he's taking this lunch break up on the roof where he's staying. Maybe they've got some water boiling for ramen noodles, whatever he's got on for lunch. He falls into a trance where this, we see in the following verses, he's given this vision. The Holy Spirit lets down this sheet with all these different animals on it, lowered from heaven. Now, first of all, again, these are some of these unfamiliar elements. When you hear about Peter being in a trance, Some of us, we get that vision in our mind. Peter's like catatonic, looks like something out of a zombie movie. That's not what's happening. In in the Bible, whenever it speaks about a trance, the the Greek word for trance is ekstasis. It's basically describing a powerfully focused attention where all thoughts and distractions are, 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 distractions are removed and the thoughts are just focused in on one thing and, and every other kind of thing that could be competing is muted. So your focus is just on that. I mean, if you want to think of a Hollywood example, this is what happens in every romantic comedy when the the main character first meets their love interest. You know, they're walking along and all of a sudden everything goes boom, slow motion, music starts playing and and just that person is in focus. Everyone else is kind of muted. You know, the hairs are flipping or whatever. And they're just like, that's exactly what you could think about when the Bible is describing a trance, just totally focused attention even though you can still, you're still aware of what else is going on. But we get to, when we get to verses 19 and 20 of our passage, look there again, we see it's solely as a result of the Spirit's initiative, his uh, sending this vision, as well as his clear direction, that Peter goes with these men to this house in Caesarea. It's only because of what the Spirit did in bringing about this appointment. Because you know what Peter wasn't doing? He wasn't sitting up on the roof waiting for his you know, pizza pops to microwave, thinking, you know what I should do today? As soon as I'm done lunch, I think I'm going to take a 50-kilometer hike. I'm just going to head up to a military official, the people that are oppressing my people, and I'm just going to ask him if he wants to hear about Jesus. He, he wasn't planning that. This was the Spirit's initiative to bring about this appointment. 
And honestly, when you look at the result of this divine appointment, verse 24, verse 33, where Peter is invited to witness now, not just to Cornelius, but to all of his relatives, close family friends, they're all huddled in this room. I mean, can you even imagine a gospel opportunity like that? It's unbelievable. I mean, this is literally like an ISIS soldier inviting you to come to his house, tell him about the gospel. When you walk into the living room, there's like 30 people huddled in the room, and they're all just looking at you like, hey. And he's like, yeah, sorry, I hope you don't mind. I I wanted my family and friends to hear about Jesus as well. Could you you tell us all about who this Jesus is? I mean, what would you even do in circumstances like that? Unbelievable. The glorious result of this divine appointment that the Spirit brought about, we see in the rest of the chapter, Peter shares the gospel with his centurion and his family and friends. Look at verse 44. While Peter is still speaking, everybody in the whole house gets saved. Everybody. Uh, it, it's, this is an amazing story of what the Spirit brings about. A couple things to see. First of all, I love that the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentile listeners while Peter is still speaking. He's not even done his sermon, and just everybody gets saved. He hasn't even had a chance to say, now if you say this little prayer with me right now, just no. As I'm giving my message, everybody gets saved right then, which just shows again God's sovereign initiative in salvation, as well as his taking away any opportunity for Peter to take credit for their salvation. He hasn't even done speaking. It's not because of such a great message. Second of all, something that's important for us to see, verse 46. Did you notice there, as a result of the Holy Spirit falling, these Gentiles begin speaking in tongues? Now, I believe this does not, as some have suggested over the years, mean that if you've truly received the Holy Spirit, then you have to speak in tongues. That's been something that I've heard taught in the past by certain people, and I, wanna, I, don't, I don't think that's what's happening here, and I'll show you why. Verse 47 as well as later on in chapter 11 when Peter's recounting this story to the other apostles, what we're seeing here in Acts chapter 10, what many theologians refer to as the Gentile Pentecost, what we're seeing here is the sign of tongues was given to the Gentiles, actually not so much for their own benefit, but for the benefit of Peter and these other uh, Jews who are with him. It's so that they can see the direct, immediate parallels between the spirits being given here to these Gentiles And Pentecost, which you read about in Acts 2, when the Spirit came on them. In both those situations, they spoke in tongues, and everyone could hear and understand the message of the gospel. And God's kind of saying, hey, 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 do you you see how similar these things are? And it's so that Peter, and then later on, the rest of the uh, Jewish church in Jerusalem can see the Spirit, the same Spirit really has been given to the Gentiles. They really have been given the same welcome into the family of God that they have. And when we think about this passage in our own context today, 2,000 years later, vastly different uh, historical and geographic setting, two things I think could be really helpful for us to think about today. First of all, all this stuff with dreams and, and visions, again, it's not familiar to a lot of us. But if we accept it at all, we might just think of it as, okay, well, sure, that's, that's a way the Holy Spirit used to work back in the Bible when, when people believed in stuff like that. If you're thinking that way, I'd want to encourage you to just do a little bit of research this week. It wouldn't take much to look at what God is doing right now, today, in places like Indonesia, North Africa, in the Middle East, in India, right now, today, where thousands, 
thousands of Muslims and Hindus are coming to faith in Jesus, not because some missionary was sent to them, but because they're being given dreams and visions where the gospel is either literally told to them or they're told to go and seek someone who will tell them the message. I saw some amazing testimonies this past week where where, uh, uh, a Hindu priest is talking about uh, meeting these missionaries and they, they said, hey, we'd like to share something with you. And he said, I know. God showed me you, uh, I saw you last night, and he, God said that you would have a message from God for me. Can you tell me what God wants me to know? Like, that's happening today, right now in our world. Which just shows us again, the Spirit does not need us at all. We're not essential to God's growing His mission. He's not waiting on us to grow His kingdom, and yet He's inviting us in. He's inviting us in to join Him in what He's already doing, because he wants us to know the joy of being a part of the growth of his kingdom. Second thing I think is really exciting to think about is if the Holy Spirit is the one who provides the initiative in salvation and he really does work out these divine appointments like this, I think it's an incredibly interesting exercise to stop and consider your own life right now and ask yourself, what kind of divine appointments could the Spirit be creating for you today? What is he setting up in the kind of people that you work with, the people that are in your neighborhood, people in your family? What divine appointments is the Spirit setting up for us, for this church? Or do you think that you live where you live, you, you, you work and go to school where you go to school? Do you, do you think this church is situated here where it is, on the corner of 17th and Crown? Do you think that's all by chance? If we believe the Spirit works like this, and I believe He does, then just like we saw with Philip a few weeks ago speaking to the Ethiopian official, I think we should be expectant and preparing for these appointments when they come because I believe the Spirit's bringing about these appointments for all of us. Okay, lots of divine appointments. One amazing example, I think, of of the myriad of ways the Holy Spirit worked then and I believe is still working now to bring the people that God wants to save into contact with his witnesses. That's what these divine appointments are about. There's a lot more we could say as we look at this incredible chapter, but the last thing I want us to look at this morning is what I mentioned as we started out this morning. The way we see the Spirit working to help this pioneer church overcome racial boundaries to the gospel. So let's look finally here at a divine pointing A divine pointing, and this is so important for us to look at today because the gospel of grace is a boundary to people in and of itself. It doesn't need any help for us. There's many people who just hear the gospel of grace and they're like, no, like that, I can't buy into that. What, you mean I don't have to do anything? I don't have to pay this or accomplish that? It's just done for me? I, I can't believe that. The gospel is already a boundary to many people. But what we're going to see very clearly here without too much looking at all, is that this boundary to the gospel in the early church that kept them from being witnesses at all to the Gentiles was not a boundary that had been created by God at all. It's a boundary that had been created and set up by themselves. Now the first boundary that we see overcome was still a religious ceremonial boundary, but as it's overcome, it leads to the freedom from this racial boundary. So look at it. Look at verse 11. 
Chapter 10, verse 11. This is where Peter starts to get this vision. The sheet is lowered with these uh, clean and unclean animals. Now, when God was establishing his covenant people after they'd been freed from their slavery in Egypt, yes, he had. He'd set up these ceremonial laws by which they were to govern themselves, ways that uh, different sorts of animals that they were allowed and not allowed to eat, all kinds of different reasons for this. But primarily, one of the reasons for, for this kind of ceremonial laws, as well as things like circumcision, all these things were about God setting apart his people. He's trying to say, you are my set-apart people. You're different from the other nations. These are some of the ways I'm going to show that you're different. But... As a Jewish man raised in these traditions, Peter would have been raised with understanding these same things himself. Hey, there's certain types of foods you can eat and can't eat, certain types of people you can and cannot uh, associate with. So these foods that would make him unclean when he's told to eat, initially that's why he responds so strongly. No, I would never eat unclean foods like this. But what's interesting is that already, back in Mark chapter 7, when Jesus was still with Peter and his disciples on earth, listen to what he had said then. He said, Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. From, from within, out of men's heart, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside a man, and that is what makes him unclean. So very clearly, what Jesus was saying was that what had formerly been set up as a means by which God's people could be ceremonially clean before him was no longer necessary, was no longer valid. He said the very same things about the temple and the sacrificial system. Why? Because these were only and ever meant to be earthly pictures that pointed to a divine, heavenly reality. They were pointing ahead, and ultimately they were pointing ahead to Jesus as the one, he himself, who was the Lamb of God, who, who would come to fulfill the law and to fulfill it once and for all in ways that these endless sacrifices and rituals never could. But out of these commands that they had, these ceremonial laws that they had, out of these commands to keep themselves clean, God's people, Israel, had created boundaries of their own. Additional boundaries of their own that they thought would help them maintain their cleanliness. One of which being separating themselves as much as possible from all non-Jewish races. Everyone who is non-Jewish, we need to keep ourselves away from them. Why? Well, because they don't share our religious faith and there's a greater chance of them making us unclean in some way. So we better just keep separate from them as much as possible. And man, all through the New Testament, you see, they weren't shy about telling people that either. I mean, you see in verse 27, look here. It's where Peter, big party foul, shows up. Cornelius is invited into his house and he says, you know, it's actually pretty unlawful for me to even be hanging out with you guys. You would think how audacious to even say that to them. And yet commenting on this passage, John Stott, theologian, he writes this. The tragedy was that Israel had twisted the doctrine of election. The doctrine, the idea that God had chosen them out of other peoples of the world to make them a special people. They twisted the doctrine of election into one of favoritism. They became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised Gentiles as dogs. 
and developed traditions which kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile, even a God-fear, or invite them into his home. On the contrary, all familiar intercourse with the Gentiles was forbidden, and no pious Jew would, of course, have sat down at the table of a Gentile, which is why Stott goes on to say later, the principal subject of chapter 10 that we're looking at here is not only the conversion of the centurion, but also the conversion of Peter. And we see this conversion beginning here in verses 19 and 20, but then throughout. Look at verse 20. The men are are knocking at the door of Peter's house where he's staying. Spirit says, three men are looking for you. Then verse 20 says, get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Now, we lose a bit in our English translations, but in verse 20, when the Spirit says, do not hesitate to go with them, That word, Greek word, diakrino, can mean Peter should go without any doubt or uncertainty. So that's where he says, don't hesitate to go with them. But it can also be translated as, go without making any distinction. So literally, what it is, the Holy Spirit would be saying to Peter, Peter, I want you to go with these Gentiles without discriminating against them. And incredibly, already you see Peter's listening. He invites them into his home, something that would have been unthinkable moments before. Now he's listening. Next, verse 25 and 26. Peter arrives at the centurion's house, and we didn't read this part, but when he comes into the centurion's house, he bows at his feet. The centurion is bowing at Peter's feet. Now, if nothing had been changing in Peter, he might have actually been okay with that. He might have said, yeah, do you know what? Uh, a centurion, Roman centurion or not, you're a Gentile dog, you probably should be bowing at my feet. And yet, look, he says to him, no, get up. Uh, uh, he puts himself on the very same level as him, as a fellow human being. He says, I'm only a man like you. Something a Jew never would have said to a Gentile. Verse 28, look there now. Peter reminds them again of how unlawful it is, how taboo it is for him to be even associating with these Gentiles. Again, not God's laws, but these Jewish traditions. And we see that just like in verse 23, Peter has already begun to interpret the vision that he had. To see that it's, it's not just about clean and unclean foods, it's about clean and unclean people. To not make this distinction anymore. That's why he says, uh, verse 28, the second half, he says, God has shown me I should not call any man impure or unclean. Now, is that what the Spirit said to him? No, but he's interpreting the vision now to understand what God is speaking about is this discrimination against these people, which I've called unclean. Finally, when Cornelius explains the amazing circumstances by which uh, he was told to send for Peter, the angelic messenger, the conversion is finally complete. Look what Peter says in verse four, 34. Excuse me. I now realize... How true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts everyone from every nation who fear him and do what is right. And we know it's complete because at the end of this chapter, you see Peter asking the same question that the Ethiopian official had asked just weeks earlier when he realized, I really have accepted Jesus, welcome into the family of God. And he says, why shouldn't these people be baptized? They've, been, they've received the same Holy Spirit just as we have. And you wonder, when you read through this, I mean, it seems like a lot of trouble to go through just for the centurion and his family to hear the gospel. I mean, why go to all that trouble? Why involve Peter at all? 
I mean, just to have a centurion send that angel to tell him the gospel message. He comes to faith. He shares the message with his family. They come to faith. The Gentile conversion begins to happen, and there, mission accomplished. What's the point of all this other stuff? Well, first of all, I think the reason to go to all this trouble is that, just as John Stott suggested there, the Holy Spirit means to convert Peter from his ethnocentric racism, even as he means to convert the centurion to faith in Jesus. That's the first thing. I mean, there's countless prophecies that speak about Jesus as being a light to the Gentiles and to my people Israel. Second, we see chapter 11. As a result of Peter's conversion, he then goes back to the the home base church in Jerusalem, and then they come to understand. They come to grow past this racial boundary. Look at uh, chapter 11. Flip the page there, verse 18. They hear the story of how this all happened, and then... They have no further objections. They praise God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Thirdly, if you remember what I said at the beginning, this is actually what Jesus had actually commanded his disciples, what he commanded his church to do, both in Matthew 28 19 as well as Acts 1 8. Make disciples of all nations. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, yes, but also in all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's, that's what he told them to do. Now, thankfully, no, nobody was stoned this time to death. But the reason the Spirit goes to all this trouble with Peter and the centurion is because, once again, the Spirit is pointing the church beyond these boundaries so they'll actually carry out the mission that they were supposed to be accomplishing. Carrying the, the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I figured this would be a good place as any to just stop and give something of a, a public service announcement as it relates to uh, this series in the book of Acts because I've had a number of people come to me over these past few weeks and, and say to me, you know, I'm kind of, this series in Acts, it isn't really what I was expecting. It seems different. I mean, I, I thought we'd be, you called it Pioneer Church. I thought we'd be talking more about the church, but, you know, it seems like we're just talking all the time about witnessing and evangelism. What's that about? Well, I, I love that comment. I love it because you know what? It shows me you're listening. <laughs> you're listening, so that's great. So let me just address that question, if, that's, if you have the same question, in case I haven't been clear enough. The, the church of Jesus Christ has one purpose and one end goal. I'll talk about the purpose here and then we'll finish by talking about the end goal because it really speaks about the way the gospel overcomes the boundary of racism. The purpose of the church, which began with Jesus and those 12 followers 2,000 years ago and which continues to this day throughout the world, is one purpose and one purpose alone, to make disciples. That is the purpose of the church, to make disciples. Now, as I said last week, that doesn't mean that all the church is supposed to do is evangelism. That's that's not what it means. Discipleship is a Holy Spirit-guided process that begins pre-conversion but continues right past it into growing Christian maturity. It's both. So, a part of what the purpose of the church is is to be witnesses to the millions of men and women who every day are facing an eternity separated from Jesus. That's, That's part of what our purpose is. But the other part of our purpose, the other wing of the plane, if you will, is to be witnesses to each other. Just like that cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12, we are to 
testify to God's goodness in our lives. We are to encourage one another each day as we strive to grow to look more and more like Jesus. It's both. And as we continue, if you're watching carefully through this series, Acts, the rest of the way we go, you'll see that almost every conversion to faith in Jesus through one of his witnesses also converts to disciples the witness. It also converts disciples, the church as a whole, into deeper faith and trust in Jesus themselves. Finally, the end goal. The end goal of the church to which we are all to be working towards. Where we see that goal, where we see that finish line that our church and every church in this world today is striving toward is actually in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7. Listen to this. Listen to what John sees in his own vision of the church's future. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, People and language standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now did you catch the end goal? Did you see it? The future vision of the church to which we should all be striving towards is one where people from every tribe... Every nation, every people and language are all gathered around the throne of God together, worshiping Him as one people for all eternity. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the gift of tongues was given at both the Jewish and Gentile Pentecost, so everyone could understand each other, and they would all be able to worship as one group together despite their differences. It It was an earthly picture pointing to what that church in heaven is going to be like. And that, that future picture of what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like, that is why racism, ethnic superiority has no place in the church. No place at all, because it is both antithetical to a gospel of grace where we all come as unworthy receivers. And it's also completely opposed to that future, beautiful, multi-ethnic vision of the heavenly church that God says it's going to be like. That's not changing. The question is, is our church today mirroring what that future vision is going to be like? Later on, when the Apostle Paul was reflecting on on the way God overcame this racial boundary between Jews and Gentiles, he said this really beautiful thing in Ephesians 2. He talked about the way that God in Jesus was bringing the Jews and Gentiles together. He was bringing it together and he talked about how he did it. He said he broke down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. That Jesus' death, his sacrificial death, broke down that dividing wall of hostility and created, he said, a whole new humanity. Created a whole new man bringing together Jews and Gentiles into this new picture. Peter or Paul understood what, what Peter understood here now after this encounter with the centurion, and I believe what Jesus wants his church for all time to understand. If Jesus gave his very life in order to break down the dividing walls of hostility, both between us and God, as well as between us and each other, then who are we to try and raise them up again? Who are we to do that? 
And listen, I'm not, I'm not saying we do this perfectly here. I'm not saying, hey, you know what? Within the walls of Dunbar Heights Church, racism is defeated. I'm not saying that, actually. But as you look around, you just take a second. Look, look around our church right now. One of the many things I've always loved about our church and something I think we do really well is giving, in this sense, giving the world an earthly picture of what that future kingdom is going to look like. A beautiful picture where every Sunday people from all different nations and languages and tribes, we gather together as one church family to praise Jesus together as one church family. We are as a church, a divine pointing to the, for the world of what the future kingdom will look like. So I want to commend you for that. I want to say, praise God for the way he's enabled us to do that. Even in the same breath, as I also want to remind us and, and warn us, what we read here this morning is that the early church, they, they had created and developed that dividing wall of racism over time and put it in place themselves. That's something they had done and it's worth asking ourselves today, what dividing walls have we developed over time? What, what dividing walls have we put up that actually have no basis in God's word, but they're more about things like preference or about things like what we're comfortable with that are actually keeping people feeling like they're not welcomed here right now? It's a great question to consider and to say to ourselves that we need to be careful. We need to be humble as a church, lest we applaud ourselves for not having this boundary of, of racism in our church and yet all the while building and defending other walls which also have no place in God's Word. We want to see a place where all can come. All can come unhindered. The only thing they should be hindered by is by the message of the gospel. And by what we see revealed in God's word, there should be nothing else forbidding someone from entering these walls and hearing. So let's pray right now. Let's ask God to help us to reveal places in our own lives, or in our church perhaps, that we have set up boundaries of our own. Let's ask for God's forgiveness and ask that he would set up his own divine encounters, his own divine appointments, so that we might, too, grow beyond these walls that we've set up. I'd ask as well, if you're helping me serve communion, if you'd come forward as well. Living God, we come before you as a church family. I praise you for a, a beautiful multicultural family, multi-ethnic family, which I love to look out on and imagine how it pictures the future kingdom. God, you've helped us by your grace, I believe, to overcome some of these boundaries to the gospel of racism. And I ask for any place in our hearts right now where we do still cherish feelings of superiority over another race, that you would defeat that by the power of the gospel. God, help us to see as well in our own lives and in our church where we may have been doing this very same thing, setting up boundaries 
to the kingdom that are not part of what you would desire for your church. Forgive us, Father. Reveal those things and by your mercy call us out of those things just as you called Peter and the church out of those things. We know it can only happen through your power and by your grace, so we ask you to accomplish it in Jesus' name. Amen.